the alphas can be dismissed. Like I said this morning, we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 13. And as you turn there, uh, many of you, I, I think I've heard this morning, were quite excited that the sun was out, even though it was like 15 degrees this morning, but our friends in California are sad this morning because it's raining. Yeah, I don't feel bad for my family either. But... When I lived there, you're probably familiar with the things that transpire in California and the West every fall after the summer dries out all the brush. They have wildfires that come every year. And it just does a great job on my allergies when we live there. But every year, wildfires would come. And for a fire to be powerful and burn millions of acres, it needs the same thing that your wood stoves need at home. It needs fuel, it needs oxygen, and it needs heat. If you smolder a fire, you let the heat die down, or you remove the fuel, the fire will go out, right? Fires are powerful. They can destroy homes, they can destroy millions of acres quickly. And today, as we look at Acts chapter 13, we're going to consider the power of the church. What will fuel this gospel moving from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, towards the ends of the earth? What fuels the gospel here where we live in central Vermont? We're going to answer those questions, but would you stand as we read the first bit of Acts chapter 13 together. I guess it'd be helpful if I turn there. Now we're, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So, being sent by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elemus, the magician, for that, is what, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who had been called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the, the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when they saw what had occurred. 
for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Can have a seat. So we pick up in Acts chapter 13, and Paul is on his first missionary journey as the gospel moves its way towards the end of the earth. As last week, we saw that we were going to be at a transition period in the book of Acts where we've seen the gospel move, and now it's right there on the cusp of Europe, and it's going to go moving west. First, the power of the God, or sorry, the power of the church that we see here in the book of Acts is the Spirit. You can follow along in the bulletin if you'd like. He, not it, the Spirit of God, calls a team of missionaries to go, Barnabas and Paul. And typically in Acts, we have seen so far that it is individuals that go. We've seen Philip. We've seen Peter. We've seen Stephen. We've seen Saul get called, that it's been individuals who are used by God. But now the Spirit is calling a team of Paul and Barnabas to go. And once the Spirit calls these two men, the church... A large gathering of believers we see here in the text affirm that call. We have prophets and teachers. And when you think of prophets in the New Testament, I want you to think of like a preacher, someone who proclaims the message of the scriptures. And a teacher is one who gives instruction in the word. So like what we do here on Wednesday evenings. But don't get bogged down by these group of people. The whole church comes alongside Paul and Barnabas. And the focus is on the power of the church, the person of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. The entire church is engaged in worship. And the Spirit picks out two and sends them. The actual word is apostle, the verb form of that, of the ones who are being sent to go and take the gospel out of Antioch towards the ends of the earth. They are sent to the nations as the blaze moves forward. The church is dependent upon God with this spiritual discipline of fasting. Like prayer, we saw last week, as prayer is a response to God's word, as God speaks to us, we respond to God in utter dependence upon him, and we respond with his word and talk to him. Fasting, on the other hand, is purposefully being dependent upon God and saying, I'm going to abstain from food more than likely or any other thing, and I'm going to be reminded of my utter desperate need upon God. God, would you do something? When our stomach growls when we fast, it's an opportunity for us, church, to say, oh God, I need your help. Jesus talked about this in Matthew chapter 6. He had a brief excursus where in the Sermon of the Mount, he talked about when you give. And then he said, when you pray. And then he said, when you fast. He didn't say, if you give or pray or fast. He said when, assuming that his people, his disciples, his ones who would be sent to the ends of the earth would be characterized by people who give and fast and pray. And so when we give our stuff away or we pray to the Lord or we abstain from food, these are all three means by which we as God's people say, God, we are utterly and desperately in need of your help. 
And so it's in this humble posture. It's in this posture of dependence that the Spirit calls these two men, Paul and Barnabas, to go to the ends of the earth. And then the church comes around them and they say, this is our men or these are our men and we affirm this call and we're going to send them to the ends of the earth. They laid hands on them, not conferring any special powers, but to affirm, yes, we believe you are qualified. We believe that you are called. We believe that the Spirit wants you to go. And so they send them, like hopefully we will do after our service when we affirm, Lord willing, the call of Eric as this pastoral intern role. Do you see where they go, though? Barnabas is from Cyprus. Saul is a Pharisee who would teach in synagogues, so they go to a synagogue in Cyprus. They go to the people that they are familiar with. The Spirit doesn't lead them to the highest place of significance. It doesn't lead them to a place like Montpelier or Burlington. It's like they lead them to Old Home Day with a bunch of people like we know. A bunch of people that speak the same language that we do. A bunch of people that know the same things and integrate into the same um, experiences that we have where we live. God leads them to where there's low-hanging fruit. God doesn't lead them to the tallest apple tree and go pick that apple at the very top of the tree. It's one right in front of them and says, go there. Speak the gospel to them. Preach the gospel to them. To bear witness like the people that we live next door to or that live in our towns or maybe your family member or your friend or the stores that you'll visit even this coming week. Going to the synagogue, like I said, is like us going to Old Home Day or Forward Festival or the Tunbridge Fair. We speak the same language. We know the same people. We know the same cultural things that people give themselves to. And so they leverage this familiarity. Is that a word? This, yes, whatever. They leverage how they're familiar with these things for the gospel. And we see again that opposition arises. We've seen that over and over again as the gospel moves forward. The people who are told that they are in sin, that they need a savior, they don't like it. But the spirit continues to be the source of power. This guy, Bar Jesus, which literally means son of Jesus, is no son of God. Appearing to be like the apostles, he is a sorcerer, like we saw with Simon back in chapter 8. And the Spirit leads Paul to correct him. We see that the Spirit gave Paul words to rebuke him for the falsehood that he was proclaiming, and he calls him wicked. He goes over and over again and says, Do not say those words. And Paul understands, overshadowed by his own story, that Paul thought at one point that he could see, and the Lord blinded him in chapter 9. And Paul, though, eventually regained his sight. And the magician here is deceiving people again, and God blinds him. He doesn't regain his sight. And those observing, they're astonished. And they believe the teaching of Paul. 
Before Paul met Jesus on that Damascus road, Paul thought he was like this magician, thinking that he was the Son of God, doing the Lord's work. But now, Paul, transformed by God himself, by the power of the Spirit, realizes that his former life was not the way that God had wanted him to, leave, to live. And now he is preaching the true gospel of the Son of God by the power of the Spirit. Do you see in verse 9? It was the Spirit who led Paul to rebuke the false teacher. The power of the church is the Spirit calling Paul and Barnabas to go, leading them to the island of Cyprus, and giving Paul the words to say. The power of the church centers around the person of the Holy Spirit. The power of the church also centers around the power of the Son, the message of his life and ministry. Look at verse 13. I'm going to read how Paul addresses these folks as he goes to a new place. Now Paul and his companions set sail for Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day they went into a synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for people, say it. It's amazing. They're asking for it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand says, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their lands as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man from the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesus a man after my heart who will do all my will of this this man's offspring God has brought to Israel a savior Jesus as he promised before his coming John had promised a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel and as John was finishing his course he said what do you suppose that I am Am I not he? No. But behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and the rulers, because they did not recognize him or understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down and from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now wit his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that was God promised to the fathers. 
This he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. And also it is written in the second Psalm, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you that therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, Everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said of the prophet should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astonished and perish, and I am, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if no one tells it to you. As they went about, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts of Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. We'll stop right there. Again, Paul and Barnabas go to a synagogue. John Mark, the author of the Gospel of Mark, he goes back to Jerusalem. But instead of teaching about the law in the synagogue, Paul shows them what the law in all the Old Testament points to. The power of the Son. We've seen the power of the Spirit in the church, and now we see the power of the Son. The power of the church is the Spirit, but also the message of salvation, the gospel of Jesus Christ. In verse 16, Paul is ready. They have, can you share with me some news? And he says, listen, listen to me. Listen to the words I am about to share with you. It is gospel. It is good news that God saves sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Church, we have a powerful message centered around Christ and used by the Spirit to transform the world. Paul shares good news. He shares the promise of good news that is throughout the, all the entirety of the Old Testament. The good news of Jesus Christ, the powerful means of salvation for God to keep his promises received by faith alone, to call to himself a people of his own possession. He doesn't just share the good news and that's it. He shares this good news that God saves. One can't look at this lengthy account that Paul delivers and say, wow, I am an awesome person. We've done so well for ourselves. It's the providence of God preserving the seed of a woman generation after generation after generation to give the church Jesus Christ. Sending him on a mission to live a perfect life, to die a sinner's death, and to rise from the dead. 
Paul shares that sinners need a Savior. Jew and Gentile both are in need of salvation. Every sin is a cosmic offense against a holy God deserving his just and righteous punishment. And without salvation through the Savior, the Son, the powerful Son, it's a bad situation to be in. And he shares that this salvation is through Jesus' perfect life, a life that we could not live, a life without sin, a life that was tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin, substituted in our place for our sins. Paul shares that salvation is through Jesus' substitutionary death, that he died a death that we should have died, a death for sin. He died in shame. He died rejected so that you and I don't need to be for those who believe the gospel. Paul shares that salvation is through Jesus' resurrection, not remaining in the grave. He proved that he was God. Jesus provides new life for those who would believe the gospel. Jesus provides justification or right standing in the courtroom of God for believers in this gospel where justification is forgiveness of sins and it's only available through the powerful work of Jesus as revealed in the scriptures by grace alone, through faith alone, for God's glory alone and church for our joy. This is the doctrine that the church stands on. The power of the church is the message of the Son of God and His work on behalf of those who would believe it. To be saved or justified, one must hear the gospel and one must believe the gospel. The message is the power of the church, but so, I'm sorry, the spirit is the power of the church, but so is the message of the Son. And belief sets one free from sin's penalty. Belief sets one free from sin's power. And Paul says, you are free if you believe that. Look at verse 39. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. And he says, therefore, in verse 43, be steadfast, keep going, keep enduring. The power of the church is the spirit. The power of the church is the son and the gospel about him. Verse 44, we'll pick up. The power of the church is God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of <clears throat> excuse me, eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles, for so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I've made you a light for the Gentiles, 
that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. <clears throat> and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing, <clears throat> excuse me, and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many were appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region, but the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. We see antagonism arise again. Where the gospel gives sight to the blind, it gives hearing to the deaf, it gives life to the dead. Formerly antagonistic, they become family for those who believe that. And all of this is by the grace of God. And even though the Jews rejected their call to be a light to the Gentiles themselves, God says he's going to still take that gospel to the Gentiles, to the nations. God didn't give up on his promises. And antagonism happens because Jesus himself is a light for revelation to the Gentiles. These words are used uh, in Luke 2.32 when Simeon is holding baby Jesus and he's saying that this boy will be a light to the nation. And Paul picks up this imagery here in Acts and he picks up this imagery because Paul is preaching Christ as the light to the Gentiles. The revelation of sin, right? When a light shines on something, we can see it for what it truly is. And so when we read in the scriptures, when we see the sun, we see that we are sinners in need of salvation. And preaching Christ, Paul says, I want to show you the power of God for salvation. Those who want to keep on sinning, they don't want to be told that they're in sin. They don't want to be told that you're going to suffer for sin. They don't want to be told that you're going to die in your sin. And so they become antagonistic towards the church. But Paul says you need to believe the gospel for salvation. The power of the church is the Spirit's affirmation of the message of the Son to bring salvation made possible by God alone. Verse 48, as many who are appointed to eternal life believed. God gives the gift of belief through his sovereign grace. Those who don't believe do not receive eternal life. They continue on their path of condemnation and death. Friends, I want God to save everybody. But it's not our role to question why he doesn't. Rather, we worship him when he does. We ask him that he would move mightily. John 3.18 is often forgotten when we read John 3.16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, right? Verse 18, right after that, says, For whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. 
God didn't send his son to condemn the world. The world was already condemned. He sent his son to give eternal life to those who would believe, to be removed from their journey towards their condemnation. For those who don't believe, they continue on their path of condemnation. And Luke picks up that it is God's gracious and sovereign will that appoints sinners who hear the gospel to believe the gospel for eternal life. And we can nuance words as much as we want, but Acts and Paul make no suggestion that eternal life is independent of God's gracious and sovereign act consisting of our own conscious faith. Some God rejects, I'm sorry, some God appoints to belief and others he allows them to continue in their rejection of him. The same providential hand that we have seen throughout the book of Acts is the same providential hand that appoints those to eternal life the gift of belief. Those who believe are the ones that the Father appointed to eternal life. And some say that Acts shouldn't be called the Acts of the Apostles, which is a name given by some people in the church prior to you and I today. There is no title on this particular book. But we've seen over and over again that Acts is a book about the Acts of God. Maybe we should call it the Acts of the Spirit or the Acts of the Son or the Acts of God. The power of the church is God. God is on the move through the church. And by the Spirit, He sends us with the message of the Son that salvation is available for anyone who wants to believe it. And so as we wrap up, I want you to consider Paul's words, the words that he started his letter to the Roman church. He says in Romans 1, 16 and 17, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Friends, the gospel is the power of salvation the power of God for salvation to the Jew, but also to the Gentile, to everybody who would believe this message. Because the gospel is the message of Jesus, illumined by the Spirit, made possible to believe by the grace of the Father, and that is powerful. And Paul isn't ashamed to share it. He wants everybody to hear, and we're going to hear it over and over again as we finish out our study in the book of Acts. And since the power of the church is the Spirit, church, let's trust Him. Ask the Spirit, are you calling me to go to somebody? Are you calling me to go somewhere to share the gospel? Maybe tomorrow at the water cooler or at the grocery store or down the hall, He may direct you to someone who needs to hear the gospel, who doesn't believe the gospel. 
and you can be the spokesperson of God to share this powerful message. The Spirit could move you to the nations. If He doesn't, He'll empower you to be His witness here. The Spirit gives us a plethora of ways to be faithful. Our role is faithfulness. So will we submit to that? Will you share the message of the Son? Will you obey the call that God has, not just on the church that we see here in Acts, but on every Christian to bear witness to who he is? Christian, the Spirit dwells within you. Christian, the Spirit uses the Bible to lead and guide you. Christian, respond to the words of Scripture in prayer. Put yourself in a position of humility. Maybe fast sometime. Maybe ask God, what would you have me to do? God, would you lead me to someone today to share the message of salvation, the gospel of your son, and would you give me the boldness to declare it? Christian, the Spirit may do something in and through you or call you to something radical. Would you be willing to respond? If not, ask him to help you. He would delight to give you that gift. The Spirit did extraordinary things in the book of Acts. And a lot of things, if we saw them in our church today, they would probably freak some of us out. I've heard stories of things happening, like the things that we've seen in the book of Acts around the world. Why doesn't it happen here? I think as American, as modernists, we love to seek control. We limit our openness to our personal experiences. I haven't seen it, so it doesn't happen. Or maybe you respond, well, I have seen it, so it does happen. We don't have apostles today with a capital A. We have the full counsel of God, the canon of Scripture. It is closed. But let's not presume that the Spirit is limited by our lack of understanding or our lack of a perception of reality. The Spirit can work miraculously. I have proof of this. You who are a Christian in this room are living proof of a miracle of God. Your salvation is a miracle. Through ordinary believers, the Spirit operates. And His work is mysterious. The power of the church begins with the work of the Spirit. And so church, let's let Him work. One caution, many who desire the Spirit's power, we want it for ourselves. But God doesn't share His glory. Remember, this story happens right after Herod wanted all the glory for himself. And while this is all happening in Acts 13, Herod's still in a grave because the Lord struck him down. 
The power of the church is in the Spirit. The power of the church is second in the gospel of the Son. It's the power of God for salvation, as Paul said. And so let's leave our shame behind. We don't need to be scared. Maybe you don't know what to say. Just proclaim. I say it every week. The gospel is the good news of salvation. The God saves sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus for those who believe. I say it for a reason, so that it would become part of our regular, everyday, ordinary course of talking. Or you can just seek to break down each phrase like I did during this sermon as we saw that in Paul's proclamation. Maybe you'd take notes and you'd say, oh, this is how I can address that issue with a friend. Or this is how I can interject the gospel with this conversation. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. There is salvation in no one else. It is only through the person and work of the Son that someone can be saved. And so church, let's proclaim it. We've been talking on Wednesdays about sharing our testimony of being a Christian and we look at the ways that this is who I was. This is who God is. And this is who I am now. Maybe that's another way that you can proclaim little bits and pieces of the gospel and share the power of God for salvation for everyone who would believe. We trust the Spirit. We trust the Son. Friends, we trust God. We come to the idea of faithfulness again in the book of Acts. Friends, our role is faithfulness. Let's leave fruitfulness to God. He appoints those whom he desires to eternal life. And so let's pray. God, give the people that I proclaim the gospel to faith to believe it. If it all depends on him, then we can be dependent on him and we can ask him to do miraculous and mighty works in our midst. We can fast for people. We can pray for people. We can ask God, would you interject yourself into someone's life to give them the gift of belief? We do that with our family, right? We don't say, well, God, would you help me to share the gospel? But I really hope you would make it so that you would keep them autonomous to believe. No, we don't say that. We say, God, break them. God, give them sight. Give them ears to hear the gospel. Would you take their dead heart and make it alive? And when it depends on God, friends, we can't mess it up when we share the true gospel. God saves sinners through the proclamation of the gospel. And so, church, we can be bold. We can proclaim who he is and what he has done. The church here, when they were rejected and persecuted, Luke describes what Jesus told the disciples to do, to shake the dust off their feet. These are my hands. You can move on to somebody else. But it doesn't mean you have to. I think most of us in this room are testimonies of someone's faithfulness to continue to pray for you, to continue to share the gospel with you, to continue to beg God, would you give this person whom I love eternal life?
I'm glad folks didn't give up on me. God does a mighty work through the power of the Spirit and the message of His Son because we trust a powerful God. The power of the church is God, Father, Son, and Spirit. One God, three persons. And the power of the church causes the church to grow like wildfire. There are Christians in every country of the world today because the power of the church doesn't rest on Christians and our ability. It rests on God and God alone and His sovereign will to be gracious, to give sinners salvation and turning them to saints. So let's ask God to help us. Father, we thank you for your word. And God, we're, when we're honest, we fear. When we're honest, we doubt. When we're honest, we're scared. When we're honest, I feel like we don't have the words to say. God, would you help us? Would you help us to have confidence in who you are and what you've done? That you can do mighty things according to your sovereign will and saving sinners. And so, God, would you use us by the power of your Spirit, with the powerful message of the gospel of your Son, to save sinners, to call unbelievers to repentance for the sake of your name, for the sake of their joy, but also for our joy as we would see them respond. We thank you. We pray for your help. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.